are in the, towards the end, in the middle of a series uh, called Starting Point, Conversations About Faith. Now, this is a curriculum that we actually get from uh, a church down in North Point, uh, Atlanta, North Point Church. Uh, this is a curriculum we go through every couple years with our, we kind of do a small group usually. There's usually between 6 and 12, 15, however many that kind of go through it. It's specifically for a faith conversation. Maybe it's to restart your faith. Maybe it's just a good starting point or you never had a good starting point um, for your faith. Um, but that's the purpose of this curriculum. And we were kind of praying about it as we thought through this year. And we just said, you know, it'd be really great if we could have this conversation together. Now, we're not doing the curriculum in terms of the eight, nine weeks with the books and all that kind of thing. But we are kind of walking through it as a church in terms of making sure uh, that we have the right starting point for our faith, right? Everything has a starting point, right? Relationships, everything across the board, you can always point back to some starting point. And your faith has a starting point as well. Oftentimes, it's something you were handed when you were younger. Maybe it was parents, maybe it was grandparents, maybe it was a church, maybe it was a school, maybe it was just influential people in your life. You were handed something, and a lot of times that is a, a starting point in your faith journey. Uh, but a lot of times, as I've talked with folks who become adults and Sometimes they, they never really got past that faith that was handed to them, and they never made the faith their own. And so that's a, that's a big deal, and it kind of causes some issues. So we went back over the last couple of weeks and just talked about where should we start? Where should our starting point be in the faith conversation? And we basically said this the first week. The starting point is a question, is who is Jesus? We, we basically talked the first week about the fact that the starting point is not the Bible. The Bible, even though we believe it's the inerrant word of God, and it speaks, and it's alive and well, and speaks to us like that's his word for us but we don't believe that christianity started because of the bible we believe that the, we got the bible because of christianity you know we, we were we were given the, the combination of the jewish text and the new testament text because of the faithfulness of god's people and of those who were already christians so we wanted to make sure again we're really zeroing in on what should our foundation be and our starting point be for our faith and that is who is jesus why because jesus solves our biggest issue that we cannot solve ourselves, which is what we talked about last week, which is sin. This is Romans 1, just kind of describing it for us. There is good news. That's what the Gospels are, right? There is good news that tells us how Jesus, how God, made us right in his sight. That's that word righteousness. It's a right standing with God. This is accomplished from start to finish. Read the words out loud. Start to finish how? By faith. That's okay. When I say that, it's your turn to talk. All right, you ready? Let's try it one more time. This is accomplished how? From start to finish. How? By faith. Right. As the scripture says, it's through faith that a righteous person has life. We talked last week specifically about what kind of faith that is, not just a having faith. What kind of faith does that look like in order to, that really brings about the trust that we need to have and, and putting our faith and trust in God? So we asked last week, what if the starting point Right? is our relationship with God is trust. That we not only trust who he says he is, but we trust who he says we are, and we trust that he can solve the problem that we cannot solve, which we talked about last week. Again, that's sin. Now, hopefully you've been a part of the reading, reading uh, online reading Bible community, which we started last week. And if you, anytime, just to let you know, if you are new especially, uh, you can jump in at any time. There's a QR code on the back of your scripture card that's in the front of, your, uh, front of the seat in front of you or on the front row, it's on the chair. Uh, we give you scriptures for the week 
Uh, but on the back side, it's consistent. It lets you know you can connect to our Bible app plan and our YouVersion Bible plan and actually connect with us and read along with some of the stuff that we're reading. This past, uh, this new s- uh, study we started, new reading plan we started, started off all about faith. And so I brought a quote out that I just loved. This was on day one. Faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace, which is what we're talking about today. Ultimately, hearing the word initiates faith. Speaking the word activates faith. And doing the word demonstrates faith. And I just love that, that idea of activating, initiating, and, and demonstrating. Like for you and me, this is a big deal. This is the kind of faith that people want. This is the kind of faith that, especially around the beginning of a year, you know, there's a lot of re-upping your faith and kind of, you know, like I want to grow in my faith. Here's the things I want to do. Here's the way in which I, I hope to grow and see and experience some things. Uh, and if that's you, that's great. That's why we're doing uh, this series. But before we jump into the kind of the, the main heart of today, I do want to address something that's become a little bit of a cultural trend, all right, a little bit of a cultural trend over the past couple decades, um, which is called this idea of like deconversion uh, or deconstruction, that's a more common uh, word used, deconstruction of faith, and a lot of times this is used around the language of people who, are, who feel like they've lost their faith, or our in the process are of rejecting their faith, of, of, of whatever it may be. So um, I really look at this and say, that is a legitimate question. What about the people who lose or reject their faith? Like, what's going on there? And I don't know, again, probably because of social media, we see more and more and more and more. It gets shared, it gets published, it, you know, it kind of gets, uh, uh, it gets kind of makes the rounds every time a famous person or a semi-famous person or just an average Joe decides to write about their deconversion story or their Losing faith story. Now, there's a few common things that I find in this, but one of the things I wanted to show you was just a very simple thing that I found in an old Barna study. This was done just a few years ago. It was right before COVID. This old Barna study talked a little bit about some of the things that get brought up, not only in these deconversion stories, but also in uh, in, in people who aren't believers. And what's common about this, they were studying, was ages. Kind of who, who, what age range does this really effect. I uh, have a hard time believing that a good God would allow so much evil or suffering in the world. And believe it or not, it's the younger younger generations, it's the younger groups, the Gen Xs and the Millennials, who really struggle with this uh, in faith and out of faith. Christians are hypocrites. Correct. Anyway, uh, Christians are hypocrites. Uh, it actually is Millennials and Boomers, believe it or not, that actually kind of kind of top that off. Um, they believe science is, or I believe science refutes too much of the Bible. This actually ends up being a little bit more um, uh, millennials and Gen X and boomers are kind of tied. I don't believe in fairy tales, which I believe, I mean, th- that's Gen X's, are, Gen X's and boomers are the highest ones. I mean, this is the VBS generation. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, that's, they grew up on, you know, David and Goliath and all that kind of thing. And yet, for whatever reason, they're like, I'm done with these fairy tales where the good guy always wins and the bad guy always loses. Like, that's just not what I see in life. There are too many injustices in the history of Christianity, and I think the older you are, as you see the graph, the older you get, the more injustices you end up seeing. Uh, I used to go to church, but it's not, it's not that important to me anymore, and I've, this was kind of weird that it's, it's kind of split between the youngest generation and the oldest. Uh, well, it's not the oldest generation, but the oldest of this study, <laughs> the oldest of this study. Um, here's the reality is that every deconversion or deconstruction or whatever the story is, there's always about two common things you can guarantee and see in almost every single story that you encounter. Okay? There might be some exceptions, but almost every single one. 
you encounter usually these two things, especially if they're walking away from Christianity. It usually has something to do with a someone told me so God, right? Someone told me so. A pastor told me this. Churches told me this. A couple someones, and my grandma used to say this. My parents used to say this. Someone told me who God was and what he was like, and I'm walking away from it. Or it oftentimes leans into a Bible tells me so religion, right? And what that is is that's people using Scripture to try to get you to agree with a system, a set of rules, something that kind of, in order to try to control your life, you need to follow this path in order to get good with God and to be a good Christian, and this is what it looks like. And it's a lot of Bible verses kind of pulled out of context and themes used, and people are just like, I I can't see it, that doesn't make any sense to me. And so usually these deconversion, again, this is just a common one, they come with these two things like, you know, it's usually around somebody told me something about God. Or the Bible was used in this way with rules and systems, and I'm walking away. I feel like I've lost my faith. And it is a real tragedy to see this. However, I do want, and I believe we've talked a little bit the last two weeks more about what the Bible tells me so, God, uh, systems, religion. Like we've talked about that as a church, and we need you to go back to listen to the last couple weeks. But today I want to talk a little bit more about this someone. A lot of times, the God that people claim to be walking away from in these deconversion stories and in the deconstruction, when you are a following, you know, follower of Christ, and you're maybe a believer with a little bit more of a foundation and, a, and a maybe a proper starting point, when you listen to these people, you go, "Well, you should walk away from that God." Like you, you know, like there's something in you that goes, "Who told you that?" Right? Like, who told you God was that way? Who, where did you get this, that God looked like this and acted like this? Who's that someone <laughs> that told you so? And so I only say that to say that we're going to walk through what we do in our study. We're going to walk through a few of what we call gods of the No Testament, okay? Little G-O-D. These gods do not exist. And what you will find, I don't know if you'll find one in here that Maybe it represents one that you walked away from early on, or maybe one you're struggling with currently. These gods do not exist, and yet they're so often the ones that people claim, well, I'm just done with God. Good. Let's walk through them. And I, I didn't come up with these titles. These aren't my titles. They're just clever little things, so if you have a problem with that, you can uh, talk to the other church. All right. This one's called the bodyguard God, okay? And this one is basically the one that we were talking about earlier, the, that first question, this is the one that gets established when people feel like, well, God's just not going to let anything bad happen to good people, right? Like people, you know, God rewards the good and he punishes the bad, okay? Just big general themes of God. Sometimes that comes from our VBS Bible school days, you know, like God's always the hero and he always steps in and he always rescues and he always does. But the bodyguard guard comes from people who have a fundamental, the fundamental like characteristic of God is that he won't let bad things happen to his people and to good people. The problem with that, again, is that that is just not true. I mean, the, the worst thing, Christianity started because the worst possible thing happened to the best possible person. All right, so there doesn't, doesn't, again, doesn't mean there's any sense to this, especially if you've been raised in the church or have a good starting point in your life, but here's the reality. Anytime those things get a, you know, our, our faith is only as strong as what it's tethered to. And if it's tethered to a God that won't let anything bad happen to you, 
and all of a sudden you begin to experience personal sorrow and tragedy and pain, you're going to lose faith in that God, right? Nod your head. That, that doesn't exist. The on-demand God, and I'll try to run through this really quickly. The on-demand God is it's not like Netflix, okay? So, but it is, it is a little bit like this. It's the God who we feel like should respond to fair and reasonable requests. It's the God that we believe should, should respond to fair and reasonable requests at least the way we would, right? Like if I were God, we've all had this moment, don't lie to yourself, right? We've all had this moment like, well, if I was God, I would do this for them. I would help them out of that situation. I would, you know, help that kid not be sick anymore. I, you know what I'm saying? Like, I would step in and do this. That sounds like a very fair, a reasonable, sometimes even selfless request. And yet you pray and nothing seems to happen. You ask God for a sign and you don't see one. Right? You ask God to intervene and it doesn't seem like he did. Or at least the path is not the way you thought it was going to be. And it didn't happen in the timing you thought it should happen. Because we treat on-demand God a little bit like a genie in the bottle, like, you know, rub up. You know, that's what our prayers are like, you know. God, wake up. I need to talk to you. Got some trouble. The boyfriend God. You can call this the boyfriend God, the girlfriend God, whatever. It's just cute. Here's, the re- here's what it means. It's just, like, you guys remember dating? You guys even got any kids that are dating right now? I do, right? And they're just always touching each other. You know what I'm saying? Like, they're always... You know, when you're dating and you're always just kind of like leaning into one another, you know what I'm saying? Like you always just kind of like, you see them and you're leaning in and hands are always trying to reach and touch and just always, right? So, so this is the God as it's described, the boyfriend or girlfriend God, it's the one that like you feel their presence all the time. You feel their presence all the time. And maybe that was your faith experience or maybe that was what people around you told you is that you're supposed to have this kind of relationship with God, and it does talk about the intimacy of God, but this idea that you'll feel his presence always. And here's the problem. That the longer you walk in faith, the longer you walk into your, your journey, um, there's going to be plenty of times that you don't feel anything. And you might not feel his presence in the way that you think you should feel that sort of intimate presence. And the reality is, is that there, sometimes there's not a good answer for that. Sometimes it's mostly us. But the problem is, is that people that have their faith kind of in that boyfriend God or girlfriend God, like, you know, it's like if he's, if I don't feel his presence, then he must not be present. Everybody with me? The anti-science God, this one is one over the last hundred years or so the church has done a really bad job with. Because for whatever reason, people continue to pit science and, and, and faith against one another. And they kind of make this argument that science is this proven, you know, undeniable thing. And then faith is this kind of unreliable, unthinking, you know, thing where, where, where faith is the answer. Like, well, just don't think so much about it and just believe. You guys with me? Like, like, like there's churches that kind of pass that off. And you're like, yeah, but there's this scientific method or thing that we're... And, and it's a false assumption to kind of pit these two against each other. And the church has engaged in this and been a part of doing this, and it doesn't make any sense. I mean, for those who are followers of Christ and those who follow God, like, we believe God created the world in six days and took a rest because he was done, right? Like, he was done. He finished. 
And it doesn't mean that he doesn't finish in terms of like nothing else is going to, but nothing else from the creation process had to happen because uh, God created a system, a predictable system and universe that we are now able to study and learn from. And there's nothing, listen, there's, there's outcomes that scientists and the scientific community, there's outcomes and agendas kind of that try to get pushed. I get it. And they don't align with what we believe in terms of our faith, and that's fine. But I want you to understand that there, this is a false idea to kind of pin these two against each other, okay? Because those who believe, those who study creation, like it doesn't automatically eliminate a creator, okay? Those who study nature, we're, which we're blessed to be able to do, study. I mean, everybody in here who's had, who's had sickness before, I'm really thankful they found antibiotics. I'm really thankful they found things to fix us, right? We don't all have to die from dysentery now. Like, that's amazing, right? Like, I'm thankful that, that, that science has come where it's come, but the reality is, is that it doesn't explain away, studying nature doesn't explain away the supernatural. And that's very similar to this next one, which is called the gap God, which is really just a lazy, lazy aspect, a lazy faith that anything that's unexplainable or anything that you just can't, you know, can't figure out, you just shove faith in there, right? And a lot of times people do this with kids and stuff like, eh, well, how do you explain that? How do you explain this? How do you, uh, you just quiet, quit asking questions, you know, just believe, right? Just have faith. And here's the problem with that is that the smarter we get and the more advanced technology becomes and the more we're able to study and learn. Listen, the list of things in the last 500 years that's, that's unexplainable is getting shorter, right? It's getting shorter. And I want you to understand, guys, listen, that's a lazy faith to just kind of shove faith into this gap thing because you don't understand. Not understanding something has more to do with our ignorance than anything else. It doesn't have to do with the existence of God. And, and, and even if I could explain everything, you're never going to be able to explain away God. So don't worry about that. Don't, have, don't fear that. The last one I have on my list is idealistic God. And this is the God who affirms what we want and feel to be true. All right? It means that we've cre we create a God in the image of what we feel like should, what he should look like, what we wish he would look like, what it would be so much better for everybody if he was just like this. And so we want this to be true. Name whatever you want there to be in this, you know, gender neutrality and sexual fluidity and moral relativism and things like that. Whatever you want to be true and you feel should be true, we, we, we put this on God, we attach it to God, and then boom, we got our ideal God. Grab some themes out of scripture, grab some verses out of context, and there you go. The problem, obviously, is that, and this is a problem not only for our current generation, but for the generations to come, if we continue down this path, is we continue to build their faith on shifting sand. That's what Jesus called it. We're, you're building your faith on shifting sand, and when the storm comes, it won't hold, right? It won't hold up. It doesn't last. It doesn't make it. And these gods, listen, if you ever walked away from one of these gods, maybe that's why you're a journey. You've, you've already had some of these deconversion moments and, and deconstruction. You've walked away from things like this, and that's why you showed up here. Good. I'm glad. I hope we're doing what we can to continue to point you to the actual God to put your faith in. But it all goes back to how do we see God? 
And I keep things as simple as I can. This is, you guys know this about me. I, I try to keep things as simple as possible. Primarily, not just for you to understand, because you guys are extremely smart people. You guys are, if you're at Journey, you're highly intelligent people, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, you guys are smart. The reason I like to keep things simple is I always want to teach in a way that gives you tools that you have the opportunity to be able to share this with someone else in your life. Okay? Does that make sense? So here's, here's the tool that I use to help people understand their, the, a proper understanding, or at least a, an initial starting point in their terms of the proper view of God. And that goes back to the question we asked last week. Last week we asked the question, do you trust Jesus? And what we were saying in context is, do you trust Jesus to be the solution to the problem of sin that you can't solve? But yet today, if you ask this question, like, do you trust Jesus, then, then here's the good news. What Jesus said about God can be trusted. And I think that's why we were given four Gospels, four accounts of Jesus' life. So we have all this incredible wealth of information of all the things that Jesus said about God and how he described him and how he revealed him. Because God's revealed himself over you know, generations upon generations upon generations. But Jesus himself got to reveal it in such a unique way, the embodiment of God in physical form. So here's a quick encounter where Jesus is trying to explain this to the disciples, how, he's, how, how you're supposed to view God. He told them, he said, look, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Now, again, Jesus would reveal God in many different ways. Um, God is spirit and truth. Like he, would, he would reveal it in different conversations in different ways. But the primary way that Jesus revealed God to others in terms of you is that he was our heavenly father. Everybody with me? So that's why he uses the language here. That if you see, you know, no one gets to go to the father, experience the father, except through me because he was known as the son of God. That was kind of the, the term for him. It says, if you had really known me, you would know who my father is. From now on, you do know him and you've seen him. This is a great mic drop moment for Jesus, right? Like, this is one of those great moments where he's like, you know what? If you really knew who I was, this, you, your mind wouldn't even be wrestling with this right now, right? And from now on, like, I like this. From now on, you're like, you've known him and you've seen him. Mic drop, right? And I love this because Philip, Philip, who's probably one of the most honest disciples, we always get great stuff from Philip. Philip says, oh, Lord, show us the Father, right? And we will be satisfied, Right? Show us the Father. Real quick. I don't know if I missed him before. Okay, quick. If you'll just show us the Father, if you could just reveal the Father to us, I mean, that would solve everything. That would, re that would resolve everything. That would fix everything. No more questions. And Jesus, in his frustration and in his love, says, look, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you, you still don't know who I am? Don't you find that interesting that Philip's talking about God the Father and Jesus continues to go, how do you not know who I am? How do you not know me? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Equal. One and the same. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Now, let's give the disciples a break. Okay, Let's show them some grace today. We're going to talk about grace. Let's show them some grace. Because listen, under, fully understanding a triune God is not easy, okay? It's not simple. Understanding the triune God in terms of this communion and union of the Godhead and God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and, you know, three persons and all in one and, you know, like, like you think about it long enough and everything gets hot. Everybody with me? 
Like, it's not super simple. So I'm going to give Philip and all of them just a little bit of grace because, because Jesus was saying, like, look, I know I'm using these words, father, son, him, me, like separate, but he's also trying to help them understand that they're one, right? Like he's doing his best in language to help them see. But here's what I love. This is the best. This is one of the best things that we get recorded for us from John that, that kind of reveals this picture where Jesus says, look, believe me when I say to you that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Like Again, trying his best to take a complex, really complex thing and make it simple. Or at least believe the, what's the word? Yeah. L believe me when I say to you that we're one and the same. It's me and God, God and me. Like, believe it when I say it. Just trust me when I say it. But he goes on to say, or at least, <laughs> at least believe the evidence of the work itself. Right? That's basically Jesus' way of saying, it's Jesus' way of saying, look, I, if you don't believe what I'm saying, look at what I've been doing and the evidence of what I've been doing. Like, Jesus has spent the last part of his ministry doing the stuff that only God can do. He was forgiving people's sin. Who does that? God does that, right? He was raising people from the dead. Who can do that? God can do that, right? Like, this is where, this is where Jesus is like, just look around. Like, you don't even need to think that hard. If you don't trust the words, look at what I've done. Look at the action. Look at the evidence of the work that I'm doing. That should, in and of itself, be enough. Seems like, because Jesus, I mean, he had a job to do. He had a mission when he was here. And this is part of why the miracles took place and why he was revealing himself. You know, I'm God and Father and I are one and saying all sorts of things that upset people. And, and it seemed like every time he was teaching he kind of had to constantly go back and remind people who God is. Because at this time, remember, the Jewish people, they just missed him. They missed him. They were following their religious system. The Bible tells me so religion. That's that. They were following the scrolls told me, the prophets told me, the law says religion. And they'd missed the heart of God. They missed him. And so we're going to read together out of Luke 15. I'm going to start the intro for you and put it on the screen. But if you want to turn in your Bible, that's the, the read-along passage today. Is Luke 15, 11. You'll have to turn to that in your own uh, copy of the scriptures. We have Bibles out there if you need them. Um, he constantly has to remind people who God is. So I told you last week when Jesus said, you know, people were upset. He was, at, he was eating with tax collectors and Matthew and the sinners. And they were like, why does he eat with such scum? And he said, look, you know, only the sick people need doctors, you know. Like only sinners need me. So here he is. The tax collectors and the sinners are all gathered around to hear Jesus. This is a continual thing. And then he says, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now the problem with this, again, was the fact that according to their religion, according to the someone told me so God, they had set themselves up into a system that would never have allowed this. They, were not, they weren't supposed to welcome them. They weren't supposed to, you know, fraternize. Like they weren't supposed to do that. And that was what he was saying. It was like, don't, you know, why does he continue to do this? So Jesus begins to tell him some stories. He begins to give him some examples and illustrations. We call them parables in Scripture. 
And he begins to give them some parables, and he talks, he kind of brings them in. And here's the reason he gives the parables. He wants them to kind of identify, right? He wants them to see and understand God, and he wants them to identify and kind of put themselves in that position. Oh, I get it, I get it. So he gives them a, a, a story of a shepherd, right, who has his 99 sheep, and he loses one, and he leaves the 99, and he goes and finds the one and finds it and brings it back, and then he tells all his shepherd friends, like, look, I found the one I was missing, and everybody goes, hurrah, you know what I'm saying, like, they were all happy and celebrated with him, and then he goes to the ladies, and he said, look, you know, what if you lost one of your coins, and it had a lot to do with marriage and worth and some of the things and value, um, but he says, you know, what if you lost one of those coins, like, wouldn't you turn the house over, wouldn't you flip every, you know, every chair and cushion to find the coin, and if you found the coin, wouldn't you call all your friends together, like, I found the coin, they're all like, hurrah, you know what I'm saying, like, yay, so Jesus is helping them like, oh, yeah, I get that. I understand that. I see that. And then he goes into this last story. Actually, depending on what you read, second to last story, parable. And this is in Luke 15. We're going to pick up in verse 11. It's called the, the parable of the lost son. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation in case you wanted to know. The parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. To illustrate the point further, because Jesus is giving them several stories, he said, a man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of the estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money on wild living. About the, about the same time the money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. No one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, you know, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father, and I will say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as one of your hired servants. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. And filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son. And he embraced him and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to his servants, quick. Bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and is now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. You know, there's a lot of ways in which God has been revealed to us. Is he a God that's holy? Yes. Is he a God that's just? Yes. Is he a God that brings judgment and has brought judgment to the world and will continue to bring judgment as we continue to read? Yes. Is he a God of wrath? Yes. But one thing that seems to be the most common and constant threat from Genesis to the end, to the Revelation, and Jesus does such an amazing job in this, explaining this to us, is that God is the God of grace. He is the God of grace. 
from Adam and Eve to Abraham to Moses to the Old Testament through the law and the prophets to his people to the church as Jesus came and, and, and delivered grace to everyone, to the Gentiles. And as we talked about last summer when we went through the Revelation series, even when the end judgment comes, even when it's all said and done and the judgment comes, there's still going to be moments that people can choose to follow him. Why? Because he's the God of grace. This is, this is the part of the story that would have lost everyone in Jesus' audience. See, the, the focus becomes the son. That's why the parable is the prodigal son, because everybody can identify with the son. Oh, yeah, lazy son, stupid son, rebellious son, like took the money and took off and blah, blah, blah. Does that make sense? Like everybody would have been like, yeah, we get it. Uh, we all know those people, you know. But the story is really about the father. The story and the parable are really about the prodigal father. Because the son comes back and is asking for mercy. You guys know the difference here. Mercy is simply not receiving the judgment we deserve. That's what mercy is. We can, to this day, you can throw yourself on the mercy of a court and, and asking basically, don't give me what I deserve. Like mercy is something everybody sort of understands. And they understood in the story what mercy was. The son was going to come back and ask for mercy. I'm not worthy to be your son. No, you're not. I'm, you know, I can't do this. That's right. I messed up. Better believe you did. You know, please have mercy on me and hire me as a servant. And yet, what Jesus explains about how the Father works is that he actually gives his son grace. This is when we receive unmerited blessing and favor. We receive something we don't deserve. And we will never deserve it. We'll never be able to earn it. Multiply my lifetime by 100 lifetimes, I still won't earn it. Does that make sense? That's what grace is. And every person listening to the story would have just been lost in this moment because the way the Father responds is just not how we respond. And yet Jesus says, but that's the picture of God that you need to have. Based on not only what I say, but what, I've, what you've seen me doing, this is who the Father is. And as you've seen me, and I'm in the Father, and the Father and I are one, like this was huge to express this kind of grace, this unearned favor to the Son, to restore him, to forgive him. And, and I know it's hard to imagine, but not everybody, not everybody really gets grace. Not everybody really understands grace. Not everybody really wants grace. There's a lot of people that are never going to cross a line of faith because they just can't surrender themselves to someone else and, and really truly believe that they don't bring anything to the table. Like, like there's people who won't cross the line of faith because they feel like they have to have some stake in the game and they're going to try and they're going to make their efforts and they're going to try to be a good person and they're going to try to do this and they just can't, they can't understand the grace of God either for themselves or for anyone else. But here's what's interesting. You know there's Christians who don't understand grace either. There's Christians who don't get grace either. Matter of fact, the rest of the story, which I won't read, but the rest of the story talks about the other son. Remember the story has two sons? And it goes on to say that the older brother, the elder son, the other brother is 
furious about the, the response of the father. That he would forgive and restore and redeem this son who doesn't deserve it. Not only give him mercy, but give him grace. And the brother's furious and he won't go to the party. Right? And the dad comes and begs him. And he's like, no. I don't like that grace. I don't want that grace. I don't understand that grace. So even believers, and he was talking about the, 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 um, the religious leaders at that time. He's like, there's even those who claim to be a part of God's family that don't get it. Their faith is not anchored and tethered to a God of grace. This is a big deal. The majority of the letters that Paul and Peter and John write to the church in the New Testament is all an echo of trying to help the church, help us understand grace and who our faith is supposed to be tied to and how it works. Here's how Paul says it to the church in Ephesus. He says, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. Leave this up for me, Tony. This, there's, I, I could preach a whole sermon on this verse. I'm not going to because we've got to get done, all right? Uh, anytime you start struggling with grace, well, how could God, and I wonder how, you know, and, you know, that, kind of, that person doesn't deserve it. Uh, if you every time you start struggling with grace, you need to remember that grace has nothing to do with who we are and what we deserve and what we're worth. Okay? Nothing. Like nothing. You don't deserve it. You've never deserved it. You'd never earn it. You can never achieve it. It's what grace is. Grace has everything to do with the giver. Right? Grace has everything to do with God. And, and this is Paul saying, it's because of his great love for you, for us. That he is rich in mercy. And he goes on to talk about grace. He's like, it's because of God. It's not because of you. I mean, you're awesome. But he's not that impressed. Right? Like, it's because of God that grace exists. And then the second thing I love is that he says, look, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead. You weren't like, you know, almost dead or slightly dead. Right? You weren't mostly dead. What's that? Princess Bride, remember? You weren't mostly dead, but slightly alive, right? Right? You weren't limping along. You weren't like not dead yet, just needed a little bit of help. No, he's like, you were dead, dead in your transgression and sin, and it's by grace alone through what Christ has done for you. All right, he goes on to say this. God raised us up with Christ. He seated us in, uh, with him in the heavenly realms of Jesus Christ. He talks about being an heir with Christ. He goes on and says, God now points to us in all future ages. Who's that? It's us. That's us. Paul's saying, he's pointing to us, Church of Ephesus, and to Journey Church. The example of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us, as shown in all he has done for us, who are united with Christ Jesus. Leave that verse up. Go back. Doesn't that remind you what Jesus said? Look, if you can't trust what I'm saying, at least trust the evidence of the work that I've done. And here's Paul. <laughs> Paul's like, look, this is what God has done to point to all generations about the incredible wealth of grace that he has, and he's doing it by the evidence of what he's done in your life. 
by the evidence of what he continues to do around you and the people of God. By all the ways he's done for us as he's united us with Christ. Matthew Bell. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. Just so that Paul reminds everybody, it's not about you. It's about him. It's a gift of God, not by works. So you can't boast about it. Right? It's not by your effort. You can't double down. You can't do better. It's not by your works and your efforts that you do this. It's by grace alone. By Christ alone. And if your faith is not tethered, anchored to, tied to a God of grace, that you begin to study and learn and experience what grace means, and it's tied to some other God, the boyfriend God, the bodyguard God, the on-demand God, when it's tied to that, then no wonder you're frustrated. No wonder you're struggling. No wonder your prayers, you know, you feel like they hit a ceiling. No wonder you're having to double down again this year. Well, I'm really going to... Make a better effort at it. I'm really going to, you know. Maybe you need to get back to that starting point. That it is not only Jesus and the way Jesus described God can be trusted, but as we've asked these questions every week, who is Jesus and do you trust him? Is your faith anchored to this God of grace? Is it hooked to, is it tethered to, is it anchored to this God? I mean, I know this is a weird thing to say at a church, but you might need to have a deconversion moment today, right? Like you might need to confess and repent and let go of whatever God you thought you were following when you walked in here. Maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe that's, maybe that's the most, the healthiest thing you could do is finally put down the someone told me about this God that I've been trying to follow And go to what Jesus said about God, what his word really reveals about God. And that when it's all said and done, it's by grace that I'm saved through the faith and belief and trust that I have that he can solve what I can't solve. He died for me. And as John would go back and say it, because of what Jesus has done, we've received grace upon grace upon grace. It's a never-ending, limitless supply of unmerited favor. Now, grace isn't cheap, because that's what we're going to talk about next week. We're going to talk about why it is we do the things we do. Why do we strive to live the life we try to live? Why, do we, why are we called to still do good things and follow Christ and obey his ideals? Like, why do we still do that? Well, we do that not to gain favor or to earn salvation. We do it out of his grace and love for us. If we don't start here, where we're, where we're today, we don't start here, then everything's going to get screwed up. Everything's going to get messed up. You're going to start thinking it's about you again. You're going to start thinking it's about all about you again. And, and this is where people start to think that grace is cheap. That grace is cheap. That the grace we don't understand is cheap. And I'm here to tell you, grace costs God everything. It, it's his grace through the work that he had to do to, remember, to seal the covenant with us. Because without the shedding of blood, there was no remission of sins cost him 
everything that it couldn't co- that you wouldn't be able to pay. And yet, it's a limitless resource of His boundless grace that is offered to you every single day. So my prayer today is that you would answer this question. And as we pray, maybe there's some confession that you need to make with him. Let's pray together. Father God, we're, we're challenged by all the ways in which we attempt to sort of make a God and fashion a God that makes us feel good about us. Whether it's the boyfriend God or the idealistic God, like, God, we're so tempted to attach things to you and to your character and to your, and and tie our faith to that. God, it's no wonder that Christians struggle and struggle and struggle versus just going to your word and, and trusting that you are the God who's revealed himself to us through Jesus. God, maybe we're needing to confess today that we've had faith in the wrong God. Someone told me so. That we've been working this Bible, you know, Bible verse system of rules and systems of behavior that we still think we have a part to play and earn favor with you. Oh God, may we just confess it. May we repent. And may we, may we cast our anchor, may we, may we surrender our soul and tether to you, our God of grace, that was revealed through the work of Christ. God, we, we need the faith that you give us to dive into that, to work and operate out of that, to live our life of faith out of that. God, help us recenter, restart right here. And it's only by your son, Jesus, we can pray it.